We're going to read our passage of Scripture this morning, and it is our habit every Sunday at Gateway to break open a passage from the Bible and unwrap it. We're going to do that today, and I'm going to ask Suda if she would read the passage for us. We're reading the back half of Philippians chapter 1 because we're spending this first part of 2018 working our way through the little book of Philippians. It's a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote uh, centuries ago to a group of Christians in the ancient city of Philippi. And this is going to be four paragraphs this morning. And as Suda reads through it, I want you to notice the first three paragraphs are essentially the Apostle Paul kind of unwrapping and giving a report. I'll explain that more in a minute. The fourth paragraph then, he turns his attention to his readers and to us. Now this is really a bridge paragraph. We'll talk about it a little bit this morning and a little bit next week, but we'll tee it up this morning. But we're going to spend most of our time talking about Paul's message to the Philippians. So I want you to hear these four paragraphs. This is really remarkable stuff. This is Philippians 1, 12 through 30. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become th clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. Yes, I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of, of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed and will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that my being with you again, your boasting in Christ, will abound on account of me. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I did, and I had, and now hear that I still have. I don't know how many of you have had this cold or flu that's going around. I understand that this season has been worse than for, for several years. I saw the other day, I don't know if this was fake, but I saw the other day, there's a state of emergency in uh, the state of Alabama. There are so many uh, flu victims. I had a little bit of the cold end of December, early January, and I think, I'm not sure, but I think it has settled in my ears because of the last few days I've 
been dizzy randomly, you know, not constantly, but just every now and then I'll turn my head. So if I fall off the stool in a second, somebody please come help me up. Just every now and then I, I get dizzy. And it, it's occurred to me that it's what a strange thing that just this little, the, the ear, this little thing can impact my entire equilibrium and my balance. Just this little impact on this small part of my body can affect the way I walk and my progress. In the same way, the way we think, the way we process life, our uh, core convictions affect the way we walk spiritually and emotionally, the way we do life and the way we do relationships. So today we're going to do three things. Firstly, we're going to unpack this text and we're going to use three questions as our, our guide. I promise you I didn't do all these threes on purpose. It just falls out that way. We're going to ask, first of all, how does Paul evaluate his circumstances? Secondly, we're going to ask, how does Paul evaluate the ministry of others and the impact of other people? And then finally, we're going to ask, what does Paul think of his future prospects? What's going to happen, Paul? Then we're going to step back from the passage, secondly, and we're going to look at three critical parts of Paul's faith. So we're going to look at what he's just told us in answer to those questions, and then we're going to back up, and we're going to look at three critical aspects of his faith. Number one, we're going to look at a settled conviction, a cr critical core belief, a settled conviction of the Apostle Paul's. Then we're going to look at his driving concern, his, his top priority. And finally, we're going to look at a freeing point of view that governed his life. And then the very last thing we're going to do is we're going to ask, so what? We're going to ask how this applies to us. All right, so let's start with unwrapping the text. Now, in Paul's time, the primary reason people wrote letters was to inform a loved one of their circumstances. And after a typical introduction, it was not unusual for a letter writer to specifically state, I want you to know that followed by the details of their circumstances. For example, I want you to listen to a letter written from a, a young Roman soldier to his mother. And I've got it on the screen for you. It says, Theonis, to his mother and lady, to Thuis, very many greetings. I want you to know that. The reason I have not sent you a letter for such a long time is because I'm in camp, not on account of illness. So do not worry yourself. I was very grieved when I learned that you had heard about me, for I did not fall seriously ill. In exactly the same way, using the same language, Paul wanted to send assurance to his friends in Philippi. The Philippians were concerned. Uh, we learn later in the letter that they had sent an emissary named Epaphroditus who had come to Rome to find out about Paul, and he had come to bring a gift to the Apostle Paul, and he wanted to return with word from Paul. This letter is that returning word. Okay, so first question, how did Paul evaluate his circumstances? Stay with me. The Philippians had obviously heard that Paul was in prison. How are you, Paul? What are the conditions surrounding your imprisonment? Are you cold? Are you well-fed? Are they torturing you? Do you have any freedoms? And here is Paul's answer. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to, to everyone else that I am in chains, in my addition here, not for civil wrongdoing or for political insurrection, but for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become more confident in the Lord, and, and they dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. So the, the Greek word translated there, advance, in verse 12, means specifically Advancement in spite of its obstructions and dangers which would block a traveler's path. That word was used often 
in Greek moral and philosophical discussions as a metaphor, obviously for growth in spite of difficulties. It's a rich word for Paul to use here. Now it has become clear to all those around me, Paul says, including the Romans, that I'm in prison because of the message of Christ. So not only is my message not impeded, it's actually advanced in spite of the obstacles. That's his answer to the first question. And do you notice what's not here? There's no mention of prison conditions. There's no mention of his health. There's no mention of food or provisions. That's because the ultimate criteria by which Paul measures his circumstances is whether or not they contribute to the advancement of the gospel. He pauses for dramatic effect. Now, if you had time to think through this statement, you might be tempted to think, wait a minute, that's a bit shallow. Was he the kind of guy that was never really honest about how he felt, always upbeat and religious? But that's not what's going on at all here. This doesn't mean that Paul was glib and shallow and always had a smile on his face even when it was fake. Paul was very capable of acknowledging difficulty. Paul was capable of hurt feelings and discouragement. We hear those things reflected more than once in some of his other letters. But at the end of the day, Paul's concern was the advancement of God's story to others who needed to hear it. And that's how he weighed his circumstances. Has God's story been advanced? The obstacles are considered and acknowledged. The difficulties are felt and dealt with. But in the end, is God's activity served? Is Jesus Christ honored? That's the measuring stick. Second question. Okay, so how did Paul evaluate the ministry of others? Let me set that question up for you, why he's even answering that question. The Philippians had probably heard that there are certain Christians in Rome who had not received Paul well. Some in Rome may have been speaking ill of him. The Roman church didn't know Paul, except vaguely by reputation. The first time they had actually met Paul was as a prisoner. So there were other preachers in Rome and other leaders of the Roman church. And the Philippians may have heard that these leaders had been critical of Paul, and they may not have been of the same caliber as Paul. So is any of that true, Paul? Who are these people? Dish a little dirt for us, buddy. So Paul says, it is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. He's laying out a really clear, almost poetic, what scholars call a chiasm, which was very familiar, would have been very familiar to these Greek readers. I'll show it to you in a second. The former preach Christ out of selfishness and ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preaching. Because of this, I rejoice. So, Lynette, bring the table up for us. So what he lays out for us here is Paul's friends, Paul's rivals, they preach Christ, the motivation, Paul's friends out of goodwill and love, Paul's rivals, envious, selfishly, not sincerely. What's the mindset? Paul's friends, they know that he's in prison for defending the gospel. Paul's rivals, they suppose they can stir up trouble for him. What's the manner? Paul's friends in truth, Paul's rivals in falsehood. And what's the result? Christ is preached. So it's true, Paul says, there are some here who may not be sincere and they may be actively trying to hurt my reputation. <gasps> oh, tell us who they are, Paul. We may have heard of some of them before. What are they saying? Give us the dirt, buddy. And Paul says, what does it matter? The only thing of importance 
is that Christ is preached. Paul's ultimate evaluation of his own and everyone else's ministry comes down to whether or not Christ is preached. Is Jesus Christ glorified? I'm going to explain that word glorified in a minute. Now, these rivals of Paul present an interesting case, and we need to dig into this a little bit. We don't know exactly what their, their thinking and what their theology was, but many commentators understand them as, listen to this, triumphalists. And this makes a lot of sense to me. This seems to be the prevailing view. Let me quote one scholar as he explains this, and you'll understand. A fellow named Dr. Ralph Martin has written a very popular commentary on Philippians, and he's a professor of New Testament at Fuller Seminary in California. He says this. He put it like this. I've got this on the screen for you. What seems intended in this paragraph is a group of Christian preachers who disdain Paul because he is an apostle in prison. They are inspired by thoughts of envy and animosity because he seems to have placed the Christian message in doubt by his weakness as a prisoner. He seems to have imperiled its progress in the world. Their rivalry is, however, not directed against him personally. Rather, they have a rival missionary strategy which excels, don't miss, in power. It proves its claim by triumphalism over opposition, and it glories in success. In other words, they believe if God were involved, Paul wouldn't be in prison. He wouldn't be in a place of weakness and shame. He wouldn't be suffering. If God were involved, Paul would be walking in victory and success, not in chains. He would be loudly proclaiming the gospel in the open to welcoming ears and applause. And we need to recognize that there are contemporary descendants of this thinking in our world today. One example would be the health and wealth movement, for those of you who know that term. This movement has infected virtually the entire continent of Africa and South America and the largest churches in the United States. Pastors as popular and as influential as Joel Osteen run the risk of being influenced by this thinking. This thinking promotes the idea that God is only and all about blessing us. And he wants you to always be successful and always healthy. And if you have enough faith, your health and wealth and blessing will, will dominate your path. This thinking sees health and wealth and success as the way to evaluate one's life and one's impact. And this is a perfect theology for success-oriented, upper-middle-income suburban Americans. Welcome to Gateway. But it's not God-honoring theology. And in the end, its worst problem is that it's not true. By this standard of evaluation, Paul was a failure, and so was Jesus. Paul thinks very differently, of course. He evaluates his own ministry and the ministry of others based solely on whether or not Christ is glorified. I want you to understand how defining and how singular and how focused this is. If Paul were among us, he would not be asking, how's it going with that new building? He'd be asking, is Jesus Christ's reputation being enlarged? He would not be asking, how much money did you bring in? He'd be asking, is Jesus Christ being glorified? He would not be asking, how's your son doing on that travel team? How are your daughter's grades? What college did she get into? 
Have you gotten that certification yet? How many bedrooms does it have? Paul would be asking, is Jesus Christ made attractive because of the way you're living? And all God's people said, they kind of said amen. Question three, what about the future, Paul? What's going to happen to you? You're, I mean, you're in prison, you're in Rome, we've heard, what's the deal? Where's this going? At the risk of being indelicate, the Philippians really wanted to know, is, is Paul going to live or die? Would he be released? If so, when? And at least, Paul, do you know when? You'll find out. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, Paul answers, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what's happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, if you're an underliner, underline this one in your Bible. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm going to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what, what will I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to part and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain in the body, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ will abound on account of me. What's going to happen to me? Paul responds, I'm going to be delivered. I will either be delivered into the presence of God through death, or I'll be delivered from prison into further ministry and to living fellowship with you, and either way is great. And I really think he means it. I really think he is utterly free of the fear of death. Okay, some of you know, who've been around for a while, some of you know that I am an American football fan, and I'm especially a fan of the New England Patriots. Whoop, whoop. Yes, okay. So James asked me this morning, I mean, he assumed, of course, that at a certain point today we were going to spend some time in prayer for Tom Brady's thumb, and we will, James. But Tom Brady is, for those of you who know American football, and those of you who know New England, especially those of you who know Brady, he has an incredible reputation for his focus and his discipline and his work ethic. Brady is doing a new, this scares me a little bit, but he's doing a new, I don't know what you call it, series on Facebook. Have you seen this? It's called Tom versus Time. It's going to be one of Facebook's first attempts at trying to do this. It's going to be a weekly, I think, release, and Brady's allowed serious and intimate access for this documentary filmographer, if that's the right word, to film his life, his life as a football player and his life with his kids and his life married to his supermodel wife, Giselle. At one point in it, I understand Giselle is being interviewed, and she talks about Brady's focus and just being married to Tom Brady, and she says something like, you know, I have to accept the fact that I'm second in uh, his heart and mind. Brady's number one priority is football, and Brady is all about football, and I, I think that's probably true. I heard an ESPN announcer, Ray Lewis, who used to play linebacker for the Baltimore Ravens, he was talking a few weeks ago about Brady, and this afternoon they're playing the Jacksonville Jaguars. Did I say? Jaguars. Whoa, whoa. This is church division already, and Ray Lewis was talking about one of the Jaguars was talking smack about Brady, and Ray Lewis being interviewed, he played Brady many times earlier in Brady's career, and he said, that's great. I love that he's talking smack. Here's the thing. If you're going to talk smack, you better back it up. And if you're going to back it up with Tom Brady, you better be watching film day and night. 
Because while you're talking smack, he's watching film and he's figuring out how he's going to beat you. He's figuring out what your weaknesses are. So you better be watching film all day long because that's what he's doing. That's Tom Brady's focus. I suspect that if Giselle were asked this morning, and we'd love to have her. Giselle, good morning. I suspect what Giselle would say is, for Tom to live as football and to retire is unthinkable. He's 40 years old, and he's still playing. Nobody has ever played to 41 with any effectiveness at all. Brady tells us that because of his intense physical regimen, his yoga, and his diet, he has his own chef. He's going to make it well past 40. He'd like to play till 45. He's told the owners of the Patriots, I'm playing till I'm 45. At this same level, Giselle, tell us about Tom. For Tom Brady to live as football, to retire is unthinkable. It is exactly in that spirit that the Apostle Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What did Paul think of his future? He thought deliverance, absolute and utter, either into a more fruitful ministry or into God's presence, and both are awesome and to be longed for. So now, we're ready to take the larger view, ready to step back and acknowledge three critical parts of Paul's faith, and we'll do this quickly. Number one, Paul lived with a deeply held, critically important belief. I hope you've heard it echo through this, through everything that we've said. This was a settled conviction for Paul that occupied a central place in his thinking. Paul understood that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. In other words, God is the author, creator, and initiator of all things. All things are in his hand and under his authority. And this conviction helped Paul maintain his forward momentum and his balance. Remember my ears. This is Paul's inner ear. God is sovereign. Now, he doesn't address this directly in this first chapter, but I want you to look at how it undergirds everything he says. Last week, we looked at the opening of this, and we read verse 6. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you and what's going on in your life, God's activity in your life, God began that. It's not because you're clever. We say repeatedly, we don't think you're here this morning by accident. The work that God began in your life, he's going to bring it to completion. And then we read later in verse 12. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what's happened to me, that's really served to advance the gospel. God is using all of these circumstances, no matter how dire they look, to advance his cause because God is sovereign. Then he says later in verse 29, a scary verse for us, to the Philippians, he says, it has been granted to you. You've been given the gift by sovereign God, not only to believe in his name, your your belief is a gift from God, but also to suffer for him. Because God is sovereign. All of it comes as a gift from a sovereign God. The second thing we need to back up and recognize is that Paul had a driving concern, and you've certainly heard this repeatedly. He had an overarching singular priority. It was the glory of Christ. Now, when you hear that word glory here or when you read it in the Bible, it's a super religious word. It wasn't always. Christians co-opted that word to use to describe God and describe the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ because they ransacked the language looking for the largest word they could find, and this was it, doxa. And this word means essentially 
find that point out there in the sky somewhere where awesomeness and greatness and power and beauty and excellent reputation and perfect character where they all come together, and that's glory. Hear it in verse 18. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. I want to see Jesus Christ glorified. And then again, in verse 21, for to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. It is always and only about the glory of Jesus Christ. Okay, in a sense. These two things, this settled conviction that God is sovereign and this driving concern that Jesus Christ be glorified, these two things combine into a freeing point of view that govern Paul's life. We're going to hear this later, and we'll talk about it later when we get to chapter 3. We'll spend more time on it, and it's going to be awesome for us because we'll need to hear it. But we're going to tease it up this morning. This is the freeing conviction. All circumstances can be received as a gift from God. When we know that God is sovereign, and when we live always and only for the glory of Jesus Christ, all circumstances can be received as a gift from God. All right, finally, what does this have to do with us? So Paul was this incredibly awesome guy, so what? Yay, Paul. (laughs) Well, what does that have to do with me? I, I mean, that kind of behavior, that kind of attitude, awesome, but not realistic for me. That's for priests or nuns or super holy people. But God will not allow us to think that way. This is Paul's point in the last paragraph that Sutter read for us this morning. And what he says essentially is, hey, you, whatever happens, whatever happens to me, you conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Remember that word gospel there means just God's story, God's good news. You conduct yourselves, you, Philippians, you, Northern Virginians, conduct yourselves, live your life in a way that's worthy, that represents the glory of Jesus Christ and his story, what he did, God's activity. Let that show through every choice, every difficulty, every joy. That's the governing feature. In other words, we are to be just like Paul. We are to make the story and the glory of Jesus our focus and our driving concern. We are to allow the truth of Paul's settled conviction, the sovereignty of God, to ooze into our bones and then affect the way we live, the way we actually live, to provide for our spiritual momentum and our balance. We are to become people who are not thrown off kilter by difficulty, even extreme difficulty, because every circumstance is a gift from God. This is where God intends to take us, all of us. This is the end result of spiritual growth. It isn't just for really holy people. This is for you and me. Some of you have heard me speak before of my own personal story with anxiety. When I was in my 20s, I began to struggle with pretty intense anxiety. Would once in a while have what I now know as a panic attack. At the time, I didn't. And I didn't really know who to talk to about this or how to even process this. It wasn't talked about at the time, and this was the 1830s, but it wasn't talked about at the time near as much as it is now. For a long time, I just struggled in silence, and my struggle would manifest itself in things like, you know, I would go to a movie to see a movie, and sometimes I'd be with friends, and I would, I would have to sit on the back row because I'd just I'd be afraid I'd get so nervous that I, I would need to go for a walk or something. I'd need to move. 
I started seeing a counselor, and I went to a counselor for a while. I was never put on medication, probably should have been, but I was never put on medication, but just this was talk kind of therapy, and went to a variety of healing services to just get free of this, and one, two, three, four, five, six, ten, fifteen attempts, and trying various things and thinking through different stuff, and just got, I really got desperate. And I spent a number of years pretty desperate before God. God, help. Remember in my late 20s, I had the first breakthrough. And I want you to know, this doesn't always happen. This is not everyone's story. But for me, there was complete and utter freedom. I don't experience this anymore at all. I felt the first chain fall off of me in my late 20s. Alone, I was in a process of just praying and thinking before God about this. And it was another one of these Can you just make me feel normal? I just want to feel okay. And I had this unbelievable, blinding realization. I used to call it my funk. My problem was it was a downward spiral for me. I would worry or I would get anxious, and then I I knew how damaging that was, and I knew how much it hurt my living, but also my health. And so I would worry about worrying, and then I would worry about worrying about worrying. And then I would worry about worrying about worrying about worrying. And it just downward, just like a sink. And I would call it my funk. There was a day, a day, in which I felt liberation, not from all anxiety, but I felt liberation from the funk. I had this blinding realization. Wait a minute. Here's what's happened. For a number of years now, I've been struggling with anxiety. And it's been gripping. And what have I done I have passionately and desperately pursued God. It has, in fact, done some things to my heart and mind and my spirit that I don't think would have happened in any other way. And I kid you not, for me, it was like, what? For the first time in my life, I saw, it's almost like my anxiety did me a favor and the chains fell off. Anxiety didn't go away, but the funk, dead, conquered, the end. Because I recognize God is sovereign even in this, and he's given this to me as a gift. God is working even in this. In fact, precisely through this. As we grow in our understanding and settle on the conviction that God is sovereign, as our driving force increasingly becomes the glory of Christ, we are set free We are free to receive all circumstances as a gift from God. We're no longer trapped and we're no longer victims. Joys and comforts no longer have the power to enslave us. We no longer spend all of our time and energy trying to keep them and guard them. Joys and comforts are no longer the center of our concern and our vision. And trials and difficulties, they lose their power to upend and derail us. Trials and difficulties no longer have the power to throw us off balance. Our inner ear is clear. We are free. That's the end result of spiritual growth. And all God's people said, Father, thank you for Jesus and for his impact on us. And thank you for the freedom that is available to us in Christ. Jesus Christ to be glorified through us and in us this morning and this afternoon and Monday and Thursday. And when we're facing difficulty two weeks from now, 
we acknowledge this morning, we confess, we believe you are sovereign. And for those of us, Lord, who struggle with that, for those of us who just can't get our minds around the whole belief in any of this, I pray, God, that you would speak today in a way that they can hear and understand you. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, let's stand together. We're going to close with a, I don't even know. This is kind of a summary of what we talked about this morning and what we will be talking about in the coming weeks. We did this song a couple weeks ago. If it's new to you, it's epic and awesome. Let's stand together and sing every day. And once you've got it, dig in. Let's make this a prayer. This is our prayerful acknowledgement that God is sovereign.